Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Kia ora koutou katoa, everyone. I'm Bernard Hickey, and from an exotic location, we have Peter Bale. Peter, great to see you. Yeah, well, as you know, Bernard, the budget for this podcast is absolutely gigantic. So today I thought I'd be in Italy, so we can do the where in the world is Peter Bale Ah. trick. Uh, I'm in Perugia, which is in Umbria. Let me just show you all the view. It's an incredibly beautiful, you know, medieval city. You're making me jealous just watching. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. it's a very nice. <laughs> it's a very nice place, and I'm here for the the truffle pasta, and it's also the home of Bachi, the uh, Perugian chocolates uh, with the little ah. the little ones with the message in them. So I will be bringing some of those back. And I've got my gin and tonic. Excellent. Well, I I haven't got anything because it's seven o'clock in the morning, and even well, I don't start the morning with You could do champagne. Yeah, I could, I could. Jesus Christ. It would probably be quite good, actually. But I, what I really need is a coffee. But let's get on with this. It's lovely to see you, Bernard. And, and yeah. it's uh, lovely to see the audience there on YouTube. Here YouTube. As well. Thank you. Fantastic. So you're in Perugia for a journalism conference. Yes, the International Journalism Festival. And it's, you know, it's quite a good time because there's a lot of media stories going. I had forgotten quite how self-regarding journalists can be. But, um, you know, being one, I have to, you know, of course, I'm not self-regarding at all, as you know. But no, it's a very important and noble profession. That's right. Well, I don't know whether it's. A, I, I was, I've always thought of it as a trade, but um, a trade. Yeah, we're, yeah, like we're artisans. A, 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 actually, well, we do artis, We certainly do artisanal journalism. And as you recall, some time ago, when I was trying to propose that you merged with somebody else, I likened you to the brewing industry. That you, you, you're in fact a, a well. Actually, sometimes you're quite a hazy, a hazy IPA, <laughs> and the other person was a bit of a stout. And we're going to talk about media a lot today because from about 5.30, we're going to have Maria Mirjolati, who is a senior lecturer at AUT Mm. and has just done a study on trust in the media in Aotearoa, which Peter has done a piece on in Marfort, which I've included in the email uh, sent to everyone. But it was sort of like a snake devouring its own head (laughs) because Maria is is a mate of mine. I've written a story about her. I had dinner at her house the other day. I think this is all getting a bit in inside baseball. But if we do Christina Hood on climate change, I've spoken to her, but she usually gets quite ratty with me about my criticisms of the government's uh, carbon credit system. Ah, yeah. No, there's been plenty of news on on climate this week, and of course on the, on the media, we've got um, Murdoch paying uh, over a billion New Zealand dollars to Dominion, and um, uh, a whole bunch of other uh, things going on in the media. But I thought to start the show, we would go international with you. You in Europe? Excellent, excellent. Oh, I, I can see, I can see so much news from exactly where I stand, Ben. Yeah. I can see, I can see Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, in, in the UK, you know, teetering on the edge of a edge of the guillotine. I can see the Sudan. You know, it's all, it's all, it's all happening from here. So, which direction is the Ukraine? So, over your shoulder in some way? Uh, hang on a minute. Let me just check my compass. I think it's east. Well, the sun is rising in the east. So, yeah, Ukraine must be kind of over there. All right. So, it's yeah. spring. We can tell from the beautiful background. So, you've been watching this closer than, than me. What's, what's going on? Spring's sprung, and that's the time when you, you do your attacks. 
in that part of the world. So what's going on? You know, I, I think I think there is an expectation that there will be, and I wrote about this in the in the spin-off thing, which I'm sure you can put out to everybody. There is an expectation that the Ukrainians will try to break through some of the Russian lines. I cannot imagine that they'll be breaking through in Bakhmut, because one of the whole points of, of that sort of conflict and, or the, the sort of uh, trapped conflict that you've got going on uh, around Bakhmut is to exhaust the Russian, you know, concentrate and exhaust the Russian forces around there. And of course, that means the Ukrainians are probably getting a bit exhausted around there too. But they've got, you know, the Western tanks now. Uh, they've got their, you know, deliveries of uh, Patriot missiles for the first time. And so they'll have some some additional air defence. I mean, air defence has been the, the critical issue that they've been talking about before they launch any kind of uh, spring spring offensive, is that one of the reasons the Russians haven't been using their aircraft to gain air, air superiority over Ukraine is that the Russians were quite good at shooting down their own aircraft in the early days of the early days of the conflict, but presumably they sorted this out. But you know, Ukraine lacks um, much of an air force now, and so they really need you know S three hundred Soviet era ground to air missiles, and they need you know Western weapons. But what one would assume, um, again, not being too much of an armchair armchair uh, general, that there might well be a push to split off the Crimea from the rest of the front line. That that will be the, the target of this may well be to sort of uh, pierce that front line and separate the two bands of Russian forces between one down towards Crimea and the ones that are concentrating towards the north, um, towards Bakhmut. But I think it's it's more or less any day, Bernard. I think mm. there's obviously been a lot of kit going on gone in there over the winter, but not really enough to make a difference on the ground. You know, a few tanks here and there, but it it, it still seems like you know it's a it's a long grinding thing, and then everyone's throwing all the equipment at it. But not everyone's got everything in there yet. No, no, no. And I think I, th- well, I think there may be more in there than we realise. And also those leaks from the um, from in the US really indicated some strain on the Ukrainian forces uh, on what they need, exhaustion and in, in particularly um, uh, air, air defence missiles. You know, I, I I don't know. It's very we're being prepared for something here. Uh, and of course, one of the things about those leaks that was quite interesting was the um, was the impact of them, given the openness, the deliberate openness that there's been on U.S. intelligence or on intelli- NATO intelligence right from the beginning of the conflict. You know, one has one has to wonder what's actually going going on there because you've got these leaks suggesting the Ukrainians are nervous, um, that they lack air, de- air defence, that they don't necessarily have enough equipment, and also you've got the political dimension, Bernard, which we we've, we've talked about before of um, some exhaustion around the support that's been, been given to the Ukraine. Yeah, those leaks are really the gifts that keep keep giving um, from a Russian point of view. Mm. And also it, it keeps embarrassing people. The Canadians are, are embarrassed. You know, there's a whole bunch of allies of um, the United States feeling rather uncomfortable here. And I see some fresh uh, revelations out of the Financial Times this morning that there's there's all sorts of dramas behind the scenes there. And in particular, um, China apparently has said no when Wagner turned up with with some requests for arms. Yeah, which is which has to be good. I mean if mm. if, if uh, Professor Robert was 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 on there, I mean I think that has to be good. China was playing 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 a long game here, playing and, and you know, they haven't they have, you know, we, we we looked at whether they were supplying weapons right from the very beginning of the you know, so they've given Russia verbal support. They've bought a lot of a lot of oil, keeping the Russian economy moving. But they haven't 
gone down the military route, and I think that's that has to be something for good. Yeah. Um, the other uh, interesting thing this week that came out of the blue, it seemed uh, for those people who haven't been watching closely, is these dramas in Sudan. Now, you've kept a close eye on it for the spin-off weekly bulletin you've done, which I've, I've sent out to everyone. Uh, what's going on in Sudan? It seems weird to see these, you know, jets <laughs> zipping across and bombs. And Yeah. Well, I th- you know, do you remember Trump used a phrase to refer to African countries as shitholes, you know, which, was, which I'm going to attribute to him? You know, Sudan, I was really struck by this, thinking about this. I mean, it's a country with immense potential. It's strategically important. It has oil. It's an Islamic country on the, uh, in northern, northern Africa. It's adjacent, you know, across the Red Sea from um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. It has big ties to Saudi Arabia and UAE. But it's a mess. You know, it's, an inc- it's been a mess for a long time. It's been a mess partly because of, you know, Darfur. Uh, ten, nearly, nearly 10 years ago, you had the Darfur crisis, which is part of the roots of this problem this week. And um, you also had the split away, of course, of, the, of South Sudan to create a kind of, you know, which is essentially a kind of Christian breakaway uh, southern region of, of Sudan, now, now a recognised country. But it's a mess. And one of the things that I tried to make the point of in, in World Bulletin was it's a country that is not being run by anybody for the good of the populace. It's being run at the moment by a military strongman who took over after a coup nearly two years ago. And the person he's, he's facing, or the person who's triggered this um, latest clash between the, uh, an armed militia and the army itself, is the, is the founder or the, the former leader of the former Janjaweed, if you remember, who were a bunch of um, rotters on horses who really led what I think is recognised now as a, as a Sudanese attempt at uh, genocide in the Darfur region. And these were the people who were, you know, riding into villages on horseback uh, four or five years ago, six years ago, I think, and, um, you know, killing everybody in the... Uh, although somebody took me to task for, for using rapine as a, as a noun, I think, rather than as a verb. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one on the chin. You know, it's, it's a really difficult situation. And this is, you know, they had a supposed ceasefire, but it's... You know, and there's now been a ceasefire, I think a three-day ceasefire called for Eid, which is the break of break of Ramadan, of course, and it's it's just awful because it's also it's, it's so urban. The the fighting is going on down you know down the airport right beside in Khartoum. Oh, there's a oh, there's some tintinabulation going on here, just for effect behind me. So, how involved are the Saudis in all of this? Because they're um, they're making a mess of things in Yemen as well. Got- well, are they making a mess of things in Yemen, or are they sorting out the mess they made in Yemen? Are they? You know, I mean, there's there's, there's Yemen is, um, you know, the, the, the Houthi rebels are in talks with the Saudis. There's a ceasefire there. I, I would have thought that certainly in Sudan, the Saudis will be trying to have a beneficial, a beneficial role. China's role in this might be interesting as well, because although it's very much a kind of military to military thing at the moment, you know, China is the primary customer of um, Sudanese oil. Yeah, I, I thought I'd give you an update on what's been happening at home, so to speak, in the last yeah. week or so. Sure. Who's up? Who's down? And have there been any, any car accidents on the Waikato Expressway? Well, we did have some horrible accidents a couple of days ago. Mm. You're right. We're in this weird zone where Parliament's not sitting. There's been two or three disrupted weeks because of uh, public holidays. We've got Anzac Day next Tuesday, and the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, is, uh, as we speak, about to jump on a plane to Australia and then head off uh, t- for the coronation next week. And uh, he's also going to be, uh, we've discovered, um, joining the NATO conference in Vilnius. 
in a wee while. What, what do you make of, uh, you know, New Zealand mucking around on the side with NATO, with AUKUS? I see some of the AUKUS stuff was leaked in those uh, mm. document, documents over the last couple of days. Um, it does seem weird. You, you, you're obviously in a lovely place there in Perugia, but it's an awful oh, absolutely. long way well, away. I think I'll have to pop down to Vilnius. Well, I'll be in Oslo next week, so I could pop across to Vilnius <laughs> if you like, just for, a, for, for us to go. You know, we can, we've got the budget for that. We'll get the, the Hickey Learjet over, the Hoon Learjet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, particularly. I'll just put on my Robert Patman elbow patches on my jacket. But, you know, New Zealand is in five eyes. It already has people at NATO headquarters at the moment. Uh, working on intelligence about Ukraine. It has people working in High Wycombe with the British Ministry of Defence on, on intelligence. It is a serious partner of, um, you, know, in the, you know, the Five Eyes gives us a seat at the table. And Jacinda Ardern knew that. Robert Muldoon knew that. Everybody knows that. It's, you know, they're not, they're not going to turn down the opportunity to have a seat at the table to, you know, to claim whatever influence is available in that. And I, you know, and I think it has to be to the good. I'm, I'm not convinced about the AUKUS thing, personally, because I, I, I tend to have a feeling that the, the further we can stay away from that and from the Australian decision on the submarines, the better. But um, you know, no, no New Zealand Prime Minister is going to do anything to damage five, their presence in Five Eyes and the, the prestige and the influence or theoretical influence that comes with that. New Zealand, we're always hunting for relevance. That's right. <laughs> trying, to, that's right. <laughs> trying to avoid being irrelevant at the bottom of the, yeah, that's right. bottom well, of the world. I, I, this, this is probably an allegory in there or a metaphor in there for us, Bernard. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And we're also, though, I think that the more important sort of political, economic news on the overseas front, I think, will be this weekend when Chris Hipkins meets up with Anthony Albanese in Brisbane uh, mm. this weekend, just before Anzac Day in which uh, we're going to hear uh, from Anthony Albanese that it's going to be easier for New Zealanders living in Australia, and there's about 700,000 mm. who will be able to um, to more easily stay in Australia. And it is good news that Anthony Albanese, unlike the previous Liberal government, has toned down the number of 501s, mm. these deportees coming into New Zealand from Australia, some of whom really have no connections in New Zealand and uh, there was an extraordinary fact, which I included in today's Dawn Chorus, that just under uh, 3,000 people have come to New Zealand from Australia under the 50. They, they get our nurses and we, and, and we get their crooks. <laughs> we get their, their gang members. But it's interesting, when you look at how many people have come here and what it all means... There has been just under 3,501s have come over since they've arrived here. That's a been... hell of a lot. If you think, if you think about that yeah. being dropped into the pool of rat bags in New Zealand, that mm. increases our rat bag quotient quite, quite significantly. Yeah, and of the, those 3,000 who have come, more than a third have since been convicted of crimes. <laughs> That's a hell of a, that is a hell of a statistic, Bernard. Yeah. So 1,326 501s have been convicted of crime since they came back. For 11,301 offences, including 1,900 violent offences. So those are the stats. And so if we can stop that 501 uh, flood coming in, that's going to help. If you talk to the cops, they say it has had a tremendous impact on, mm. the, on the amount of crime and on, the, and on the scale of violent crime. Yeah, I think it's one of those sort of balance of power type situations. There was a uneasy truce or some sort of accommodation between the main 
meth-dealing gangs, but mm. when the Comancheros and the others from Australia <laughs> came in, it was a bit like um, disrupting a, a duopoly. Um, it yes. was going to cause trouble, yes. whatever yep. happened, and that's what's happened. Mm. Uh, however, well, they've probably, think, all done, they've probably all done MBAs while they've been in jail. Yeah. Now, there's an awful lot of um, well-organised businesses selling uh, chemicals to mm. all sorts of New Zealand. The, the supply chains mm. in there are quite um, sophisticated. And uh, I think this, though, is going to be a big deal because those 700,000 New Zealanders over there, probably more than half of a million of whom don't have full citizenships rights because they arrived after 2001, mm. are more likely to stay there. And, of course, at the moment, we've got upwards of uh, 10,000 New Zealanders net every year going over to Australia to live and work permanently. And often they stay there for two or three years and then realise they can't put down their roots and have a family, so they come home again, often after saving a deposit. But if they can stay and put down roots, um, mm. they're more likely to not come back, and that's going to increase that sort of constant uh, drain yeah. Yeah. of local residents leaving for... Well, New Zealand better make, make itself more attractive, Bernard, because as, as we know, you know, every New Zealander that goes to Australia raises the IQ of both countries. Yes. So, Peter, we've got a special guest who's just we have. Uh, joined us... Thank you very much, Maria, for joining us. Um, Peter, perhaps yeah. you can... So, so, so I was just saying, Maria, to, to, um, to, to Bernard and, the, and our 112 listeners that uh, having you on is a bit like the snake starting to eat its own head, is that um, we're friends. Um, I had dinner at your house recently, and, of course, I picked up your excellent report on trust, the JMAD report on trust in uh, media in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and published it uh, this week for Enma. Now, it doesn't sound as though it's a terribly pretty picture for New Zealand media organisations and for the state of media. And one of the interesting things, of course, Maria, here, uh, which you've written about before, is the sort of correlation between trust in media and trust in politics. So what, what, what can we make of your report? Or maybe you just give us a quick rundown of the headlines of your report. Uh, yeah, the trust in news. Thanks for covering it for Inma, uh, Peter. Um, the picture is not great. So in the past four years, we have seen the trust has fallen from 52, uh, oh, sorry, 53% to 42%, so a general trust in news. So we used to be four years ago on top of the news trust. So, you know, New Zealand was, you know, the one of the highest, you know, where the, the country, countries where the trust in news was on a high level. And now we are in par with the 46 other countries or average uh, mm. studied by the Reuters. Uh, so it's it doesn't look great. And of course, in the year when we have elections coming and everything else, and we see a lot of polarization going on at the same time, it's it's a worry, of course. Maria, could you tell us how you think the introduction of the Public Interest Journalism Fund, the PIJF, has affected uh, the public debate about trust in New Zealand's media. Yeah, I had a chat the, with the Ministry of uh, Culture the other uh, and Heritage the other day because I'm uh, part of the consultation process uh, for the long-term media strategy or whatever. And um, I said that, you know, to be honest, I think it has done the biggest disservice to the media uh, in this country because it, it, I'm talking about perception, you know, not... In in fact, the new, a lot of you know news outlets have uh, reporters um, in local you know local reporters. There's uh, some great uh, uh, local uh, news um, production uh, going on. There's that open justice uh, you know program which is uh, you know enhancing court reporting etc. So there are 
good things about it. But when we're talking about the perception and how the per- people now perceive the media, it's now being used against the media and it's being mm. weaponized. And it is this rhetoric like the, 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 the mainstream media is in the government's pocket and the government owns the media and it, the media is just an extension of the government. That's what we see. So it has actually done a big disservice in the perception of the people's mind, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's so interesting, Maria, because it, you know it was the intention uh, right at the very beginning was about you know supporting the media industry through COVID and um, supporting the media industry to do to do to do reporting that might not otherwise be done, and it got rather hijacked by some of the people um, behind it, and perhaps maybe by the media organisations who pushed some of the funding into into areas that weren't about sustainability. But as you say, these areas of kind of legal reporting. Um, some of the regional reporting that's that's been done through this process is is really important and valuable, um, but but the fund goes away now, right? Yeah, so they had last round just recently, so the the final seventh round has been um, finished and the money has been now um, distributed. It was three million, I think, the last round. Mm. Um, but, you know, I recently also wrote an academic paper which is under the peer review. You know that our articles are peer reviewed and um, uh, with my colleague from Australia. So we looked at the, they had a similar kind of fund in Australia. Um, and yeah. then uh, we compared the, the public interest journals fund here and then the Australian model. There are so many paradoxes uh, arising from uh, that funding. And, of course, the trust is one thing. But also we question about the transformational power because when the, the Ministry of the Business, or, or sorry, Ministry of Broadcasting, introduced the whole uh, whole thing, they say that this is kind of you know transformational in terms that you know, this is helping the media businesses to become more sustainable. Mm. I question mm. that. And also, I, I I don't like the idea, and I have said this in the past, that a lot of that money went also to commercial news outlets like Discovery or NZME, which are shareholder-owned, and which actually I think personally that it is a shareholder. Shareholders should pick up the tap, not the public or the, the government or whatever. There's, you know, there's a lot of arguments, and I'm not saying that... You, you agree with me, but uh, there are paradoxes arising from this. Murray, I, I just wonder, now that the fund is finished and there has been some increased funding for Radio New Zealand, RNZ, do you think we're in a healthier position now and that this can be a, um, an aberration around COVID that we can move on and improve? Well, I hope so. Uh, I, I do hope so. And uh, before we had the Public Interest Journalism Fund, no one was actually shouting so loudly that, come on, that, you know, we have a, you know, the media is funded by the public. And this fund actually made that happen. So everyone kind of knew that TVN said, got the, you know, the public funding, although most of those, its funding comes from advertising. But there was not such a hula baloo about the Radio New Zealand, you know, the public, in, the public uh, broadcasting funding around that. Uh, I, I sincerely hope that we're moving away. Uh, it's good that the Radio New Zealand is getting more funding. I'm not against the public funding of the media as such. I think just the, the mechanism, how it's delivered, mm. is the, the perhaps the problem. Because if it's then this uh, changing the trust and perception 
uh, about the whole news industry and news media, it's doing a big disservice, as I say. Yeah, Mario, there's a really interesting additional aspect to this, and I'd, I'd like to come back to you about what media can do. But the, the, John Graham, one of our one of our listeners, also raises the question here. Uh, you know, we've seen this this week, this last couple of weeks, Elon Musk mm. almost personally as the chief executive and owner now of Twitter, um, changing the labels for what are publicly funded media organisations like the BBC, Radio New Zealand, to state funded and state supported and so on, and that's of course caused to stink. It's it's a really it's a really subtle difference, and I was really struck by that with Twitter because I I I think you know done some work with Facebook to identify um, state influenced um, media around the world and as opposed to publicly funded, and it's it's really subtle. It's important, but it's but it's subtle. You know, the BBC is not uh, state directed, uh, and and nor is nor is Radio New Zealand, but you know Russia's RT is, um, CGTN in China is. Um, these these labels matter. They do matter, but they actually gone now. I just was on a Twitter, and apparently they gone. Yeah, Apparently, what the, the reason they're gone is that Elon also at the same time turned off all the blue check marks. This mm. is his big day to yeah. force everyone to pay for the blue check mark. Although yeah. we've also heard that he decided to personally pay for LeBron James and a couple of other high-profile celebrities to have the blue check mark mm-hmm. because they wouldn't pay. Um, yeah. And you do you do wonder. I mean, I'm I've got lots of dogs in this fight. Um, oh yeah, my I, blue check mark's gone. <laughs> Bloody hell! Yeah, yeah. So you're not verified <laughs> anymore, you know? <laughs> no, no, none of us are verified anymore. And that's that's a really interesting point. You know, the verification of news, the gradation between official. This is an organisation where someone's checked someone that something that there's accountability. There was at least something to that blue check mark, and it's interesting with Elon Musk deciding to to do all this for his own reasons, mostly to do with increasing revenues. Uh, he's been mucking around all over the place. For example, uh, again in the last day, he's been disabling links going back into Substack. Mm. And of course, I'm a big fan of Substack and the Twitter version that's inside Substack now called Notes. And I'm hopeful that that this period of social media funded by uh, algorithmic-driven advertising is something that we're going to get through and move towards a subscriber-funded way of paying for news and information and commentary where the incentives are different. Bernard, do you know what the what the statistics from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism are about the number of subscriptions that the average person maintains? One point no. one. One point one. Yeah, yeah. One point one. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So well, luckily, yeah. you know, luckily that some of them are, are, are coming to the, yeah. to the kaka. That's yeah. great. Um, Mario, what what can the what can the New Zealand? I mean, are there, You know, we talked a lot about this. I think there's, there's a couple of factors. I'm, I'm sitting here in Perugia at the International Journalism Festival. Yeah, lucky you. Um, where unusually, I'm I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not talking bollocks um, here, uh, other than other than this this session. But um, the you know, there's a lot of talk about trust. Mm. Uh, I went to a session yesterday about membership models, which mm. is which is you know where people become supporters yeah. rather than just subscribers. They're having real difficulty. Mm. And then by the end of the year, you've also got the end of um, third party cook theoretically, but the end of third party cookies, uh, which will mean that advertising becomes both more challenging and more difficult potentially for media companies. Because they're going to have to, you know, work much harder to get their advertising, but they've also saturated their sites so much with um, pretty shitty advertising in many cases, like, um, you know, the the uh, 
toe cleaning and earwax earwax <laughs> removal that you get from Taboola <laughs> without being too disgusting. Um, you know, the, if, if you've saturated your site with low-quality ads, that presumably has an impact on perceived trust as well. Yeah, I don't... I'm, I'm not... You know, I haven't actually looked at, you know, but uh, I could... Uh, see that at least on a personal level when you see all kind of you know your fa- uh, twitter feed for example is uh, full of all kind of stupid advertise uh, advertisement it does just makes you annoyed uh, basically but i do wonder I, i want to throw this to you because i was thinking this the other day that hang on a minute if the google search is you know a challenge and as we know it is uh, and we get the new chat uh, gtvs and versions of it could hmm. that actually mean reverse because if the google search which is based on the linking to the stories will go and then chat gtv doesn't have any links so would that actually be good for the news media so because then google wouldn't monetize those links so who yeah, is there yeah. is there, well, is there think, a space think, for the advertising then which looks the new home or whatever would that actually be something that the news media could capture uh, this is i'm just throwing this back to you <laughs> no no theoretically yes and i was i was thinking about exactly this yesterday that uh, in fact i went to an astounding demonstration of some things that chat gpt can do so most sites derive perhaps 30% of their traffic from google from google search mm. from being discovered on google That will continue for a while, but as you say, the attribution on all of the ChatGPT versions that I've seen so far, whether it's Bing or or some of the others, the one of the weird phenomenon which was picked up in this thing I was at yesterday is that so ChatGPT has this problem, or large language models have this problem, what's called hallucination, and the hallucination, which is the making up of purported facts oh, in yeah, the stories do, yeah. by the engine, mm. which is incredibly clever. Mm also applies to links yeah. back to media sites yeah. and so many of those links don't in fact exist mm. so yep. a, a, and and the likelihood the likelihood of people of, of humans actually following i mean think about the last time you actually li- linked uh, or, or looked deeper into wikipedia to an actual link of the original material at least that's been verified by by humans mm. yeah um you know the 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 chat gpt links are, are not verified by anybody yeah Um, and and many of them just don't exist. So the, the the loss of traffic is going to be phenomenal. There is a I mean not to get too in the weeds about you know media companies, but there is an argument that yet again media companies are going to uh, do well out of the, out of this and about the end of co- cookies because advertisers will want trusted environments, mm. uh, you know, want safe places to put their to put their advertising. If that's the case, then I think a lot of media companies better clean up their environment before that happens. Yeah, because they don't have a trusted environment. Yeah, they've mm. they've pissed, pissed away their trust by having, you know, really poor quality advertising yeah. on their sites to which they've become addicted. Yeah, yeah, and there is another angle here on the um, Chat GPT AI thing, which is that uh, journalism could be done by Chat GPT. And this week, oh, Business yeah, Desk so, announced. Mm. Business Desk mm. announced that it's going mm. to be doing some very basic uh, news items off announcements from companies through the New Zealand Stock Exchange, uh, which is helpful in that it effectively pre-qualifies the news and is often it's been written by very well-paid PR people so that it's uh, uh, verified as true from the company's point of view. And this allows Business Desk to cover a lot more and is always checked by a human before they hit the button. But um, Peter and Maria, are, are you seeing much of 
the news media actually using G- chat GPT to do journalism as opposed yes, to absolutely. worrying worrying about uh, chat GPT as a competitor. Well, Sh- Shipstead, the big uh, the big uh, Norwegian publisher, is um, is using it uh, every day to to do a summary of the. In fact, what we should do, we should get Simon to do this. We should we should run the audio of um, of the Hoon through. Uh, chat GPT and see what it comes up with as well because it would actually do a, an extremely good and very effective summary of this. So Shipstead is using it for the Norwegian paper VG to mm. do a, uh, a daily summary and of course this week we had an, a, a German newspaper publishing a fake interview with Michael Schumacher uh, you know, which was completely completely made up. But uh, for example I did a thing yesterday in, 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 as an experiment in the, at this conference of getting Chat GPT to read a story, and then suggest um, search engine optimization tags, which are which are you know is essentially mm-hmm. a summary about what the thing is about, and it was instant and incredibly brilliant and yeah. very clever. Yeah, you know, okay, the ChatGTP. If we think about the automatization of the the news, so we have already had long time the news, uh, you know, the AAP and you know Australia and others have been using it to uh, to um, write sports results and company results. So this is nothing new in what actually Business Desk in in terms of the what Business Desk is doing. They're just using a different tool, you know. So I think uh, that's. That's been for there for a while. Uh, how widely and how you know much is going to be used? That's you know then a different kind of thing. Um, yeah. Just uh, just finally on the issue of trust, uh, this week, uh, Fox News settled mm-hmm. with the the Dominion voting machine company uh, for um, nearly eight hundred million US dollars uh, because it lied about. Dominion uh, voting machines, um, and this, of course, is the big lie at the centre of America's um, democratic near-death event. What do you think, Maria, of the uh, decision by Fox News to settle? And uh, we've since learnt today that Lachlan Murdoch has withdrawn his defamation suit against Crikey in Australia, but um, and Fox News barely mentioned the settlement, mm. how much was involved, or whether it settled at all. What 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 do you think about this whole exercise? Well, I think you know it's it's great, of course, that the the you know the the lies and lying in the media is called out, and there are consequences if you are lying. Uh, I think it's absolutely you know uh, right thing uh, to happen. What is a bit disappointing, I uh, you know agree with some critics that it would have been nice to see it in the court. Not just that you know seeing the Murdoch there sitting, it would have been wonderful, but but it would have been just to uh, draw those lines and testing those boundaries that what is a defamation and where that, you know, how far can you actually go with those lies? So Mm. it would have defined that kind of, you know, space uh, if it would have been uh, going to the court. So, uh, yeah, I would have loved to see it uh, from a journalistic point of view to see that defamation defined again uh, and legally. Yeah, no, that's one of the great things about court cases is that, you do actually see people put on the spot in public. It's documented. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons, you know, legal systems and uh, public courts have been, you know, a fundamental basis of building trust in democracies over the years is that they are the final, you know, public place where the truth, we hope, is discovered in some way. And that's that's the frustration here is that our chance to 
see the lies called out in public mm. was blunted. Yeah, it's also a bit, Bernard, I was really struck that um, there was no public apology. I mean, apparently that was the last kind of critical sticki- sticking point that Fox did not have to do an on-air apology. They, I think they, they covered it for six minutes uh, throughout the day on the, on the day of the, um, of the settlement. But we have also, the, there's a second case coming up, of course, which is the Smartmatic case, which is a very similar case, very similar company, also founded to um, get over the Florida hanging chads problem. And, and they are suing Fox for $2.7 billion. So one could imagine that that will be settled in the same way. But perhaps that will yield the apology that we, we didn't see this time. And quickly, one, I know that we're finishing off. Uh, the, I think that if you, we are asking people to trust the news, it's also we have to also, uh, you know, um, hold the media accountable for their own actions. Yes, no, you're right. Uh, Maria Mialati, thank you very much uh, for being on The Hoon today. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Now, I'd like to welcome into The Hoon Christina Hood from Climate Compass. Christina has been very helpful in helping to educate me on the, on the, the dramas and the intricacies of our emissions trading scheme and is an expert on climate policy in Aotearoa. Christina, welcome into the Hoon. Lovely to see you. Yeah, good to good to see you too. You've got to be a particular kind of nerd, I think, to find drama in an emissions trading scheme. But, uh, Absolutely. Here, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> yeah. we, we are those nerds, uh, Christina. Thank you so much for coming coming on. Yeah, well, I found my people then. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's super important. As we've seen over the last couple of months with uh, all the climate dramas around the world. And unfortunately, just in the last day or two, we're seeing signs that La Nina is increasing the temperature of the seas to the not just record, record highs, but off the charts record highs, which is slightly concerning, uh, given that it seems, as we saw earlier this year, the the atmospheric rivers that are flying around the world tend to come out of these... um, very warm waters uh, in the centre of the planet. Christina, this week has been a big one for climate policy um, in New Zealand, and next week will be almost as big because we've got the Climate Commission coming up with its first draft advice to the government on the 2026 to 2030 budgets that the government will have to meet in terms of uh, its climate. What did you think of the government's performance uh, this week? In particular, we learned that David Parker, um, the Environment Minister, and of course the government, uh, decided not to effectively challenge New Zealand Steel's reconsent of its uh, of its project. And also, we 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 learned, in fact, you, you'd indicated a while, a while ago actually that there was a particular problem with a, a law change, which means that many of the major emitters are actually going to get extra free credits, uh, despite the original uh, idea of the, the legislation not to do that. What do you think of the government's performance so far on on climate under Chris Hipkins in the last six months or so? I guess all of climate policy, some people talk about it as doing the cha-cha, sort of two steps forward and one step back, and you hope mm. to make progress over the long term. So you've got to, you've got to take the backward steps with the, the big forwards ones, I guess, is the philosophy I take, but um, certainly had some backwards ones lately. On New Zealand Steel, um, I'm not sure that anyone expected that to not like to be completely cut off and say, you know, no, you have to stop operation. It's more a question of whether there could have been different conditions around the consent and so on. And I, 
honestly wasn't following it closely enough to know what would be appropriate there. But I would say that it's this kind of this whole area of industrial transition is one that, that New Zealand has not dealt with well at all so far. So it got pretty much ignored in the first emission reduction plan because it was sort of a, oh, well, we'll focus on agriculture and transport and electricity and so on. And there was sort of an assumption that it's dealt with by the ETS, but of course it's not because all these companies mm. get free allocation in the ETS mm. and are essentially being subsidised to continue doing what they have been doing. In other countries, they are turning their mind to, okay, well, we may well need many of these energy-intensive products and even in a low-carbon world. How do we how do we get that next generation of investment? How can we be the hosts for zero-carbon steel or whatever it's going to be? So... I think that the combination of the consent process and the reform of the emissions trading scheme are going to together be really important for, um, you know, thinking of, thinking about it in a positive way. How do we build the future that we want? Yeah. Than how do we squash what we have? Christina, they're going to have to make these mechanisms work, though, aren't they? I mean, that, that market mechanism of the, of the ETS should be, and it's a brilliant idea that, you know, we, we need... Somebody's made the point on our chat that, you know, do, do you think we don't need steel and blah, blah, blah. I mean, of course we do. And we also want, presumably, um, economic growth in New Zealand to sustain our relatively young population and so on. But th- these mechanisms don't seem to be working as, as, as planned. Well, These market mechanisms like ETS, like carbon trading. Yeah, well, our ETS was not set up to transition the, the economy to zero emissions. It was set up to meet hmm. the obligations of the Kyoto Protocol, which is just you know, either make reductions or plant trees to add up to a particular incremental reduction of whatever it was, you know, 10%. So that was a different time and it was a different challenge and that's the policy that we have right now. I think that there is ahead of us a big challenge to say, okay, if we do actually want to stop using fossil fuels and to stop emitting CO2, what does an ETS for the future need to look like? And the government is going to be consulting in the next couple of months around this kind of this big picture future of the ETS question around what is the role of forestry? Is it going to be allowed to continue to offset emission reductions? So that's really actually one of the most fundamental questions, I think, in our climate policy setup, and it's, it's going to be mm-hmm. an interesting one to engage on. Yeah. Christina, I, I wonder, though, at the heart of this is a question which is deeply unsettling when you think about it, which is that... We currently don't have a carbon-free way to make steel at any great scale. And steel is right at the heart of all of our building, infrastructure, manufacturing processes. At what point do we have to say, actually, if we're going to reduce our emissions, we're going to have to reduce our consumption of a lot of these items. And we're also going to have to reduce the amount of carbon embedded in the new things that we're building, new buildings, new motorways, new railways. At what point do we flip from we can have it all, uh, we just need to use some different technology, to actually we can't keep expanding, we're going to have to reduce our consumption? It's a combination of all of those things that you just discussed that we need. So all of the, all of the future scenarios that actually get us to you know, 1.5 or even below 2 degrees scenarios you need everything. You need the demand reduction and you need the circular economy type recycling. So most of our steel would come from recycling, not from fresh you know, manufacture. 
you need substitution, so we should be using engineered wood instead of steel in lots and lots and lots and lots of applications, and there needs to be a level playing field for that that properly takes account of emissions. And then for the residual new stuff that you do need, there actually is zero carbon steel. There are, there's zero carbon steel plant in Sweden that's been built, that's operating. So it's just a question of, you know, are you a government that's looking to that future and supporting it? Or are you, you know, just, oh, well, we'll, we'll be the slow follower and um, carry on doing what we've been doing? Christina, we, you and I have talked quite a lot about this, and, and, I, and I think we disagreed, or at least, you know, I mean, me as a non-expert challenged this, and it was probably unfair of me, you being an expert, but the, there's a very interesting European, particularly in Europe, reaction, and particularly from farmers, to the various net zero plans in Greece and in, in the Netherlands. You've now got an, an entirely new political party emerging very strongly out of, out of grumpy farmers who are deeply concerned about having to get rid of their, their pigs and so on. You know, that's, it's, it's quite a New Zealand scenario where we haven't taken the big steps with agriculture, but we've got this dependency on carbon credits. I mean, what, what do you think the politics... I, I know you're a scientist rather than a, than a, than a political analyst, but what, what do you think the politics are of getting the public, getting particularly interest groups like farmers, to accept and understand the need for some of these changes? Because there's quite a move against them. Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely key, and it's a huge, it's another huge gap in our kind of policy. Our, our kind of when I say our policy architecture, I mean that writ large, you know, across all of society, is that there's nobody yeah. who is actually leading that public discussion around why why are we even doing this? Why does it matter? What actually has an impact? So, you know, that is not the Climate Change Commission's role. Oddly enough, they are not asked to be the public communicator around the climate challenge and why we need to be doing it, and they do not have budget for it. And then government is reluctant to do it because it gets, um, it starts to sound like they're, you know, spending money on, on publicising their policies and so on, and you always get into political trouble for doing that. So we really do have a problem that um, nobody is, is leading the, the debate. And we've lost our great, we've lost our greatest political communicator. You know, Jacinda Ardern, you know, described this as our nuclear nuclear free moment, and now we've got someone who's, who'd rather talk about bread and butter. That's true, but the but at the same time, I would say the government hasn't it hasn't led in terms of like whenever there's a, an announcement of a particular policy, then sure they'll do the the communications around that announcement. But there's no kind of deep engagement with society or communications efforts to really to build up that understanding and acceptance of what we need to be doing. And, and it's interesting that, to see that in action. Yesterday I went to the Chelsea Sugar Factory in Auckland where the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister were announcing a $400,000 grant to the Chelsea Factory to install an electricity-powered device to reduce its emissions by about uh, 10%, so 2,700 tonnes of carbon. So this was um, an event where they probably spent more on the people going to do the PR and the <laughs> visit than they did actually on reducing emissions. And it's interesting in asking the CEO of Chelsea after the event, what about the main game here? Because they've reduced their emissions by 10%, but they still have two coal boilers that heat up the raw sugar with water and turn it into white sugar. What about the two coal boilers? What are you going to do with those? Are you going to turn them in? Are you going to electrify them like 
Fonterra says they might do. And essentially, the, the CEO and the chief operating officer told me there's no way we can do that economically, even with a big grant from the government. And I also asked a question, which um, Chris Hipkins was not thrilled with, uh, which was, I asked him, so why don't you introduce a sugar tax to reduce consumption of sugar, therefore to reduce the emissions Steady needed? Steady yeah. <laughs> And um, he said he wasn't planning to do that. And ultimately, I sense that politicians in an MMP environment, particularly those in the centre, are never going to propose anything that reduces the um, standard of living of any of the voters who matter, particularly those in the middle, and their total approach is we can have it all. We can have low emissions with our existing mm. lifestyle. It's, it's what Boris Johnson calls cakeism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we are definitely getting to that crunch point in climate policy where we are going to have to stop pretending that there's a free lunch out there because there's just not. You know, and you saw this in the government's ETA settings decisions. It's like, oh, we want to still meet the targets, but we don't want high price and we want to allow extra emissions and we want to. It's just like it just doesn't add up. Mm. It's like the maths is brutal and it's, you know, every tonne that goes to the atmosphere matters. You're talking about, I mean, the, the Chelsea economics. Um, I, I had a discussion exactly like that about a South Island um, boiler conversion just this week. And there is a, there's a big gap between the carbon prices that we have today mm. that would drive these changes and the ones that, that seem sort of politically feasible. And if you're not going to have that price in the market, then you have to overcome that gap with another policy, a regulation or a subsidy, and governments have to be willing to do one or the other. You either let the price rise or you implement the other policies. But letting the price rise just doesn't necessarily impact people's cost of living, particularly at the bottom end. It's about what you do with the money. So you can you can raise the money from a carbon pricing and you can recycle it in ways that mean that it's not... That, that people at the bottom end come out better off because they get more back than, than what they've, they've paid. Christina, we, we, talked, we talked today quite a lot with Mario Mialati about, about media and trust. What, what do you think the New Zealand news media should do, could do differently about fulfilling this role about climate exp, uh, explanation as well? Because we, you know, one of the things we talked about was the, the risks that the Public Interest Journalism Fund had actually uh, eroded trust by being seen to be sort of... Um, too close to the government, but what, what, what would you like to see the media do? I guess it's actually, I think, a bright spot in a way that there is a lot, a big growth in the last couple of years of the number of journalists on kind of the climate beat who are able to, to communicate these issues in a thoughtful way and really understanding what's going on. So that really is building up and there's um, an increasing number who are able to you know, corral the resource to do more in-depth reports as well. So I think that that is kind of heading in the right direction. Um, as with many contentious issues, I would love to see it taken out of the, you know, the, the political journalist's hands where it becomes, you know, the horse race of yeah. he said, she said, you know, setting up a fight and just, you know, OK, well, what do we need to do to get on with it? Supposedly both major parties are committed to the same target. So, so how are we going to get there? You know, that's a reasonable debate to have. Well, I'd, I'd like us to talk talk about this more again sometime because I, I just think that we, you know there is a role for even even things as, as small as the hoon to explain some of these things to keep you know to yeah. 
to, to give the background, to explain what's going on, to look at these logarithmic changes that you see with tiny, you know, the, the well, significant differences in seawater temperature and so on, and what that then leads to and how difficult it is to, to combat. It requires, though, a, a, an across-the-system decision. And we've seen some organisations do that. For example, Stuff has really made an effort with its um, uh, environment reporting team, the likes of Eloise Gibson and now Kirsty Johnston, jumping in and doing quite detailed, broad journalism, which isn't in the political pages. It tends to be in the features pages. And you're starting to see it turn up on the front pages as well. So, for example, this week, um, the article about the government's decision to allow New Zealand Steel another 25 years without having to worry about the climate, that got onto the front page of uh, what mm. was what which used to be called the Dominion Post. It's about to be called the Post from uh, from next week. No, and that's and great. It, it needs to come out of the environment section because it's not an environment mm. issue. It's a economic and social issue. It's about how we're going to structure our society in the future to operate at zero carbon, and that is not about environment. And actually, it's a financial issue too. It was one of the questions I put to Chris Hipkins is that the failure of the ETS settings is going to take more than a billion dollars in revenue away from the government, depending on how you measure it. And um, the Climate Commission is uh, pointing out that actually one of the ways you might drive governmental change is is to make it a financial story. And when Treasury starts to include the future liabilities of these carbon credits, which we'll never really be able to buy. I have been fighting that one for about the last decade, Bernard. One day, one day it'll be on time. One day it'll be recognised. Yeah, that's right. There will be a day shortly where it's like, oh, of course, that was always the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep fighting the fight and um, in a detailed, geeky, fun way. Christina, thank you very much for coming on to The Home. Lovely Christina. to see you again. Good to see you. You're welcome. Cheers. Bye. Peter, lovely to have you on, on board from the beautiful Perugia. Yes. Oh, I'm going to go and have a coffee soon, which I badly, which I badly need. I don't really have well, my skateboarding dog story is a, is really a Brexit story because, um, you know, there was that period when everything in the UK seemed to be a Brexit a, a Brexit metaphor, whether it was fires, floods, or whatever. But this week, the Orient Express, the the Hercule Poirot train, um, said that um, British British customers would have to um, get get to Paris uh, themselves in order to join it. Because it's too hard to get the train across, uh, get 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 it to Dover and across across the Channel, because of the Brexit. Oh, really? Because because of the passport checks, it's um, too unreliable. Too too. It's just impossible. So, you know, we, we need to be careful careful what we wish for. When is there going to be a real revolt in Britain? They must realise now this is a complete mm. disaster, and yeah. it just needs to be overturned. Yeah, well, it's not going to happen anytime soon, I'm afraid. I mean, Labour, the, Labour has said Labour, which is likely to be, or you know, in any, in any sensible place you would imagine, uh, would have it would would have the next go. Has said it's not going to try and overturn overturn Brexit. Certainly not in its first term. So, uh, I'm afraid I'm afraid they're where they they where they are. But it is. I mean, but I have been here since since Brexit before. But just something about going through the um, other passports queue when you're going across Europe is a little depressing. Peter Bale uh, from Perugia. Um, we are, if if nothing but a, an international podcast, <laughs> taking on a, on a magical mystery tour. Absolutely, absolutely, and really great to have Christina and Maya today. 
Yeah, no, yeah. lovely to Thank have you, uh, Christina, Christina and, and Maria on the show. Um, that has been The Hoon. You've been listening to Peter Bale in Perugia and Bernard Hickey in Hoon Bay, <laughs> Hoon Bay in Auckland. Lovely to see you all. Have a great weekend. See you, Bernard. Bye-bye. Catch up. Bye-bye.